Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Sean gratos los dichos de mi boca y la meditación de mi corazón delante de ti, O Jehová, roca mía y redentor mío. We can never know about the days to come, but we think about them anyway. And I wonder if I'm really with you now, or just chasing after some finer day. Anticipation, anticipation. Is making me late, is keeping me waiting. Now for those of you with darker hair than me, these are the words to the song Anticipation by Carly Simon. 1971. No, I was way too young to have heard those words too much, but somehow they got lodged in my heart, my brain. I thought of playing a short clip of that this morning, but even I know that that would be inappropriate. <laughs> the truth is that we all live with anticipation. We Westerners are generally very futuristic people, aren't we? Always looking to the next season. We're three days into winter, and I'm ready for spring. I've already called our nurseryman because I want to make sure I get my order for my San Marzano's in. Anticipation. Much of our life is focused on what's to come rather than what is. Pam can tell you that I love planning vacation. If she's honest, she may say that I love planning vacation even more than vacation. And if she really wanted to spill the beans, she'd tell you that in the middle of our vacation, I'll be planning the next vacation. Anticipation. There are many things that I love about Anglicanism, but one of the aspects I cherish the most is that Anglican liturgy forces the ADD brain to engage with the present. On a macro scale, that would mean focusing on the seasons of Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Holy Week, Eastertide, Pentecost, or Ordinary Time. As much as I might try to escape, I am constrained by the present, and that's good. On a micro level, every single part of Anglican liturgy requires our engagement with the present. If we're going to worship effectively from the acclamation to the blessing, we must engage with what is happening, what is happening now. It's imperative that we sync ourselves with the present in order to make an acceptable offering of worship to Him. Still, there's something very futuristic, very anticipatory about Advent. I'm not sure that any of the church seasons other than Advent portray the theological concept of the already and the not yet as fully as Advent, because every step through this season should remind us that His kingdom is coming and that His kingdom has come. The inauguration of that kingdom took place two millennia ago. However, the fullness is yet to come. And to be engaged in Advent, we must be firmly entrenched in the reality of the world within which we live. And that's a world that's suffering birth pangs just as Mary suffered. A world that is bankrupt due to a hope deficit. A world that offers little of real value to our children and grandchildren. You see, Christians are not incurable optimists. We have to be fully aware of the reality of our context and not live in denial because it's only when we embrace the certainty of the depth of hopelessness that characterizes our world, 
our nation, and even our communities that we can fully make way for and anticipate His kingdom. So we live in anticipation. The interesting aspect of anticipation is that it rarely coincides perfectly with reality. Whether it's our our favorite dish or vintage wine, the the first bite or swallow rarely tastes as we imagine it. Whether better or not, it's different. It's not quite as we expected. And as we turn to the Gospel reading from this morning, it's important that we reflect on what Israel was hoping for, what she was anticipating with regard to the coming Messiah. Because it's clear that the toughness of the times had reshaped Jewish thought with respect to that long-for event. Long gone were the thoughts reflected by the prophet Isaiah regarding the suffering of the coming one when he said his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He goes on to say he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Those were the words of the prophet Isaiah. But you see, Jewish thought contemporary to the birth of the Christ child no longer embraced the idea of a Messiah who would be a suffering servant. Instead, they dreamed of a royal king who would deliver them from the oppressor. They were ready for certain war and victory. And who could blame them? About 30 years ago, an article came out in the L.A. Times on Christmas Eve that gave a vivid description of the socioeconomic context into which Jesus, a Jewish child, was born. Now, I'm not suggesting that you look to the Times for your primary theological training. This is actually a good piece, and I quote, It's clear that Herod was brutal. Jesus was born into essentially a third-world context under a military dictatorship. It was a society where everyone was coerced, as in most agrarian societies, about 10% of the population was born into the nobility and lived lavishly. The remaining 90% worked the fields around Nazareth, growing grapes, olives, and grain. So little wonder the multitudes dreamed of a Messiah who would provide deliverance, not forgiveness. But their anticipation did not coincide with the coming reality that would be characterized by a certain counterintuitiveness and would perplex the religious elite. So for the next few minutes, we'll look at three unlikely aspects surrounding the text of our Gospel reading this morning. These who, where, and how that were not part of the anticipatory thinking of the Jewish masses became reality. First of all, Mary was not a likely candidate to give birth to the Messiah, the Savior of the world. First of all, she was a woman. Now, I know the likely answer to that is that these days only women give birth. However, if we're going with likely answers, we probably don't want to talk about the virgin birth, do we? Because we do believe in the virgin birth. Why would, in a patriarchal society... God not just set the Messiah into the hands of the Father. The forgotten second verse of O Come, All Ye Faithful is often deleted from modern hymnals. And for those of you who are present, 
uh, last Sunday evening, you would, have, you would have heard it and the words are the following. God from God, light from light eternal. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, only begotten Son of the Father. All very reminiscent of the Nicene Creed, isn't it? Secondly, she was a Jew. I mean, in the interest, in the interest of being seeker-friendly, why didn't God select a nice Roman girl? Since the birth of the Messiah was to be miraculous, why was it necessary that a Jewish mother... And I know the logical answer would be that the purpose was to fulfill Old Testament prophecy concerning, concerning the lineage of the Messiah. But let's not let ourselves off so easily. Why would an all-knowing God set in motion a plan that would of necessity alienate much of the world's population due to race? I mean, why not make it easier? Not likely. Most of all, Mary was obscure. She was, in essence, a nobody to her day and age. Tradition varies greatly concerning her because there seems to be precious little to go on. Some believe that the absence of the mention of her parents indicates that she was an orphan. There's little doubt that she was poor. Considering she was mother of the Christ, there's so little mention of her in the Scripture. Despite Mary's being from the wrong race, the wrong socioeconomic class, the wrong gender, and virtually unknown, she was much graced by God. And may we never underestimate the power of God's unlikely grace and favor. Perhaps nowhere is the concept of God's ways not being as man's more exemplified than in his selection of servants. So why Mary? I'm not foolish enough to attempt to give a comprehensive answer to that. But I do think verse 38 is important. In short, Mary trusted. Nazareth was hardly a likely place. There was a host of other cities that could have been chosen for the announcement of the birth of a Savior. There was Sephorus, just three miles to the west. There was Cana, about four miles to the north. Because Nazareth was, in essence, I'm sorry, it was a podunk town. There was likely only one small synagogue to serve the people of the village, probably because, by some estimates, there was no more than 20 or 30 people that lived there. Now, I grew up in a suburb of Billington, West Virginia. And I'm saying suburb in jest. So I know what it's like to be from a small community. Being from Nazareth, wasn't exactly in her favor. There was nothing particularly good about it. It was a wide place in the road. Remember the words of Nathaniel when first called by Christ? He said, could anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, seriously. Nathaniel himself was from Galilee, but apparently Nazareth was the subject of local jesting. Then why Nazareth? Why that place? And the answer may be found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. At least a, better, a very general answer. But God shows what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God shows what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So Nazareth wasn't a likely place, however, it was God's chosen place. 
Any missiologist today understands that geography is important and that God chooses to move in particular places at particular moments. And history teaches us that lasting marks are left on places of God's choosing and as a result of His visitation. So thanks be to God for Nazareth. The how or the means that God chose was certainly unlikely. After all, there was a myriad of ways that He could have chosen to inaugurate His kingdom on earth. Ways that would have been credible, yet attention-getting. It isn't as though God had not done highly visible miracles before. He had. The Old Testament is full of them. By one count, 87 of them. And they aren't all good, but they are all highly visible. From creation to Enoch's translation to the confusion of languages at Babel to Lot's wife being turned into a pillar of salt to Moses changing rods into snakes to the widow's son being raised from the dead and the Jordan River being divided by Elijah's mantle, etc., etc. All highly visible. However, this miracle, this presentation of His very Son is done in a distinct way. God shows a miraculous means, but not a highly visible it was reminiscent of what the prophet Elijah experienced in 1 Kings 19 during one of his more challenging moments, during a time when he felt completely alone. During this time, the Lord spoke to him and said, Elijah, stand on the mountain and wait for me. While he was there, a great wind passed by, which split rocks in two, but the Lord wasn't in the wind. An earthquake followed the wind, however, he was not in the earthquake. A fire brought up the rear, but he was not in the fire. Following the fire was a low whisper, and the Lord was there. Gabriel said to Mary, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Mary's response was short and to the point. By one translation, it says, I am his to do with as he pleases. So... It. There's no record of any physical sensation, no fireworks, no trumpets, and Gabriel left. That was it. An unlikely way and means to inaugurate God's kingdom. I dare say that all of us here this morning live in anticipation of dynamics, events, emotions, and new, and new spiritual heights and depths. There's nothing wrong with that. But I'd like to challenge you, however, to cultivate an attitude of openness before God, an openness to His plan to do what might not even be on the table at this point. The inauguration of His kingdom came through an unlikely person, in an unlikely place, through an unlikely means. In a few moments, we'll gather around the table and receive of the body and blood of Christ. And as you come, whether it be to receive of the Eucharist or to ask for a blessing, could you come with a silent prayer of openness to Him? And if you decide that you need to have someone pray with you afterwards, you will find prayer teams in the back of the nave ready to do just that. If you're searching for words for your prayer, could I suggest these? Once again, from verse 38, I am yours to do with as you please. So be it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.